Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman, and I'm here with my co-host, Lara Chenbaker. Hello. Hello. Here at Jackie Winter, our roles put us right in the center of the action in between client and creative, so we get to see all sides of the process. Every week, we come together in the abandoned suburban shopping mall that is our recording studio and dissect three different links we've come across during our recent internet travels. We use these as a jumping-off point to look at what's shaping the issues, processes, happenings, and ideas across the creative industries today. This week, we're going through our open tabs and we'll be discussing cultural discourse, the rise of custom type design, and welcoming our new chatbot overlords. Helping us bring some outside perspective today is our very, very special guest, Georgia Francis King. Georgia is an editor born in Melbourne and currently based in New York. A New York Times bestselling editor, she has led international teams of award-winning journalists, moderated blockchain panels at the UN, and spoken about primal psychology at Creative Mornings. Formerly the editor of award-winning design magazine Kinfolk, she has fused her background in lifestyle journalism with her passion for emerging technology. As Quartz's idea editor, she aims to bring a quality-of-life focus to the future's most pressing topics and translate dense academic subjects into engaging content through op-eds on QZ or QZ.com. What do you say? Is it QZ or QZ? I get oh, this wrong funny. every time. It's funny. It actually it, it leads perfectly into <laughs> into our first our, link. Our first link, Lara, which is a QZ, QZ. So That's very uh, cute. And I think I'd go between the two of them, so who knows? <laughs> Georgia, you're fresh back in town after a trip to Dubai for the World Economic Forum's annual convening of the Global Future Councils because, of course, you sit on their Quantum Computing Council. <laughs> you're amazing. You're here. Thank you so much. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm tired after reading, having my own bio read back to me like that, aren't I now? <laughs> I'm tired. I'm, I'm exhausted just looking at that bio, but it is such a, a genuine joy to have you here, Georgia. We are really, really glad we were able to make it work with you again, all the way over in New York. Again, continuing our trend of having Australians based in New York on the show. We really need to. I mean, that is the whole podcast at the moment. Yeah, we should change the title. Jeremy, I noticed that you're wearing an Apple t-shirt. Did you buy that in your recent visit to the Apple offices? I did. Yes, this is my shirt from um, the Apple Park Visitor's they have kind of they have shirts and merch that you can only get at the visitor center. So very swish. Yes. You look great. Thank you very much. How well, are you? Uh, I am. Uh, well, I just got stuck in traffic. Bad traffic. You know the the classic Melbourne story. It was fine. I, I just like I sat at the one intersection for like eleven minutes and I just watched the clock. And I, you know, there's nothing you can do but you sort of stare at the light, like wishing it with your like Jedi mind force to change green. And it and then it does, and only one car gets through anyway. It's a whole thing, but I'm here and I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to get started. Well, take us through our first link. I'm going to really need some handholding on this one because, yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll hold your hand, Jeremy. So, look, unsurprisingly, I've got uh, yet another piece today that I found on Medium. This one's written by Hallie Agnew. It's the only piece on her profile and there was no other information about her, so I don't really know how I came across it or, or who she is, but I did really enjoy the piece. It's called, it's titled Unfluent and Proud, and it's a reflection upon her experiences as a 12-year-old when her father received a research grant and he moved the whole family from the United States to New Zealand for six months, so across the other side of the world. And in her piece, she references an essay by James Paul G, which is entitled Discourses and Literacies, which provides a bit of a lens through which we can sort of view her cultural transition between these two countries. And the concept of G's essay is that each person grows up 
indoctrinated in their primary discourse or, as he puts it, culturally distinctive way of being an everyday person. So uh, Halley's primary discourse, uh, which was sort of formed in the waspy American middle class, it involved church on Sundays, reading before bed, family dinners every night where she was expected to regale her family with stories of her day. And all of these things, her way of speaking and listening and writing and reading and acting, interacting, valuing, feeling, dressing, thinking, believing, all of it had contributed to her ability and success to interact with others in the world. And this is this sort of whole idea of, of discourse, that it's it's a way that you can recognize and be recognized as a member of a specific group. So Hallie's piece looks at how when she moved to New Zealand as a child, she found herself for the first time, neither sort of recognizing uh, nor recognized by the dominant discourse in that place. So of course, there are sort of all the cultural differences that people joke about all the time, things that that might seem like really surface level, like uh, using different words for the same things. You've got sort of like university versus college or or different ways of greeting each other, like, you know, handshake versus one kiss on the cheek versus two kisses on each cheek or, you know, it's interesting, I think, though, to think about how all of these seemingly quite small things can make for some very real culture shock and, and dissonance. And there can be sort of enormous effects on your ability to get around in the world, everything from sort of making friends to buying groceries or getting a job. So in the piece, Hallie talks about how at age 12, with a, obviously a, a total lack of knowledge about what a discourse was, I mean, same until I read this, to be honest, um, she was very ill-prepared to sort of manage that shift in dynamic. And as a child who had spent her whole life up to that point in the one place, in the same circle of society, she didn't even realize that things could be any different to what she knew and what she was used to. In her words, I came in well-versed in my American academic and social discourses. I spoke out in class, but the teacher didn't appreciate my contributions. My extroverted social discourse didn't immediately make me popular with the Kiwi children either. Every time I made a loud joke, they seemed to react in astonishment and laughed more at the fact that I thought the anecdote was appropriate to tell rather than at the joke itself. I fit right into their assumptions about the stereotypical brash and loud American. It took a while to realize, but finally I realized that somehow in this city, it was the kids who were the most reserved, polite, and shy that were actually the most popular. I had stumbled into a nation of introverts and I didn't know the discourse. So through trial and error, she sort of had to test what would and wouldn't fly with her classmates, which is something that she definitely wasn't really that equipped to do as a 12-year-old. And at the time, and and only there for six months, she lacked obviously the insight to sort of self-criticize and self-reflect in a way that might allow her to sort of change for the better. And instead, she sort of just tried to, she talks about how she tried to blindly uh, impose her own discourses in a culture where they didn't really fit. And it wasn't until her uni days that she learned about cultural literacy and discourses and she finally sort of recognized why this had been such an intensely awkward period in her life. And of course, uh, before we dive into any sort of discussion, there's a lot to be said for embracing cultural differences and encouraging uh, cross-cultural understanding, whether that's amongst kids or adults. But undeniably, you know, these clashes in discourse, they're, they're evident, they can have an impact on us. And both of you two, both Georgia and Jeremy, you are living over the other side of the world from where you first began your lives. So Georgia, I want to start with you. You're originally from Melbourne and you're now based in New York. How long have you been in New York? I've been in America for nearly six years now. So it's actually going to be interesting having this interview with you two from an Australian accent and an American accent, because I am now in what people here call the South African phase of my Australian accent. I can hear it's that. Bit, it's def- I mean, Everyone hits that point after about six years, I think. Which is when my, my R's have started to drop in. So I, I can flip to an American accent really quickly <laughs> for you guys, if you want me to. So here, there, everywhere. That's weird. Yeah, it's, I'll, I'll go. I'll go back to my my semi Australian accent now. But I mean, it's 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 a real thing. I feel I serve this in many ways because not only am I now an Aussie living over here in New York, but from my perspective as an editor, I'm having. I spent most of my 
started my career at Frankie Magazine in Australia with Joe Walker, my editor at the time, editing all the Americanisms out of my writing. And now I'm here editing to American English, editing the Britishisms out of everyone's writing. I'm constantly questioning what phrases are my own, what phrases are others. There have been some brilliant terms that I have discovered far, far, far too late Australian ones. Can I give you my favorite example? Do you mind if I swear? This involves a lot of swearing. You are more than welcome to Great, swear. because that's what Aussies do. So the phrase, when you say the phrase, uh, when someone cracks the shits or when someone, uh, when someone gives you the shits, when you shit someone up the wall, we all know this in Australia to know that you were getting angry at someone. But that is not so obvious to Americans. So I went on saying this for about two years when one of my interns at Kinfolk, after a shoot that didn't go very well, I was complaining about some things that were happening and I cracked the shits and they cracked the shits and everyone was just shitting each other. And then she, she looked at me, she looked at me and she went, oh, did you feel better the next day? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It just blew over. And she said, oh, well, you know, it can really take it out of you sometimes. And I realized that she thought that everyone had diarrhea, that we had somehow through the food at the shoot, everyone had diarrhea. And I thought back to all the times I must have used this phrase in my professional career. And everyone just calmly in America was nodding their heads going, mm, mm, not touching the cheese board. Okay, fine. <laughs> and these things must happen all the time. Like I even noticed when I was in the US, I was there once with um, one of my best mates and we, as a lot of Australian sort of a lot of Australians do when you're close friends, I'd say more than half, let's say like 80% of our conversation with each other is just bagging each other out. Like we're just um, making fun of each other. And it's often in a pretty like harsh way. And it's very dry. It's very sarcastic. And we found that Americans just did not get it. They genuinely thought we had like a real problem with each other. And things like that, are just, uh, it's hard to adjust to. And I, I want to know, like, do you feel that your sort of personal understanding of the world has been challenged by moving to the US? Like, how do you navigate that? Some other similar ones like that, that I remember I just moved. I remember standing in a circle with a bunch of people and sarcasm is basically non-existent here. And so, I know, in, order, so bizarre. In, in order to show affection for someone, I might go, oh, Jenny, you know, she's really something, isn't she? In a way that is like, it sounds like I'm saying that I don't like Jenny, but I actually do love her. And as I can hear myself saying it, it's like, it just goes into the abyss and I just want to like go and grab it and pick it back up again. I think that it also happens. I'm picking up things like instead of laughing, Americans go, that's so funny. Oh, I'm, I'm that's picking, so true. I'm picking those kinds of things up as well. It's a different way of expressing yourself because it's natural for humans through like primal psychology. We want to mirror each other. It shows that we're listening. It shows that we're part of the same in-group. So that's why I said that my accent might get a bit funny depending on who I'm talking to this, uh, this interview because my accent tends to unintentionally code switch now depending on who I'm I'm speaking to. So whenever I go back to Australia, I turn pretty ochre pretty quickly but then when I lived in Portland, Oregon for three years, when I was editing Kinfolk, I only met three Australians that entire three years. And they were all at loud bars for 10 minutes, all passing through. And so for three whole years, I didn't have my own accent reflected back at me, which is probably uh, really sped up the way that I've taken on having to understand Americanisms. And also the fact that I'm editing a lot of American writers, you get to realize when you are being misunderstood very, very quickly. There's also other strange things like in Australia, we say um and ah, but Americans for some reason say hem and whore. Like Jeremy, do you say that instead? I'm not that elegant at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what's your experience being doing the exact opposite? 
Because, Jeremy, you, you're, what, from Long Island originally, right? Strong Island, bra. Strong Island, bra. And uh, you're now, I mean, look, safe to say you're pretty set up here in Melbourne. It's been a long time. Um, I mean, aside from me always getting annoyed at you for writing dates the wrong way around, has this affected you in any context, whether it's like work, family, social groups? You know, I don't know. I mean, this is, this is a topic that comes up a lot. Like, you know, every time I'm on the phone with Bianca, you know, who runs our North American office, like it's kind of like a game. It's like Australians do this, but Americans do that, you know? And it's, it's, it's something that I feel is must be much more apparent kind of coming the other way, like, you know, coming from an Australian base. Cause I really find as an American, it's a real interesting mix. Like people, you think that Australia is so much like America, but it is really very, very different, but it's really hard to kind of be in touch with that as an American. But the more Australian I get, the more I kind of feel it because I think Australia is a place that you know, we talk about tall poppy syndrome a lot about that Australia places a lot of value, especially on American culture as well. It always kind of felt like being in a bit of a kind of a theme park where it was kind of trying to be a little American in some ways. And I think if anything, that has kind of always kind of increased. So I've always kind of felt very kind of welcomed and kind of mm. it, it, it kind of felt like Australia came to meet me in that way, or I can't imagine what it would feel like, you know, the other way kind of culturally and you know, even in a in a working environment as well. Like I kind of feel that there's a lot there that I know kind of talking to Bianca that like, you know, that she's kind of reckoning with in that way. But yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't really experienced it. And even kind of reading this piece as well, like it was really hard for me to kind of it was just hard for me to, to engage with this piece. I didn't really fully kind of understand what it was talking about. Like, I think when I hear a word over and over, like she uses the word, the author uses the word discourse, I think 51 times in this piece. <laughs> and sometimes you hear it so much and it loses its meaning. And like, I don't know, like I, I couldn't really get in touch I with it. I do that as a kid. I would just like pick a word and say it a thousand times until it. Oh, it's freaky. I had such an exciting As an editor, I can tell you that writers do that as well. Yes. <laughs> um, well, I mean, like Jeremy, we've talked a lot on this podcast about how it's key when communicating in a, in a professional environment, well, in all environments, but particularly in a professional environment, how you sort of need to think about the way the person that you're communicating with likes to interact and, and how they like to receive information and mirroring that, as Georgia mentioned as well before, you know, to some extent. And you've worked in and with people from many, many different areas of the industry. So how, I mean, forget just like Australia, America. I mean, how does that discourse or do you think that discourse differs between them? You know, for example, like between your initial design career in the US, artists in Australia, publishers, ad agencies, big companies like Apple, students. Yeah, I, my opinion is that like these discourses or these kind of or or whatever kind of these sets of norms are, are really becoming much less geographic and much more specific to actual kind of businesses and individuals and creating their own kind of silos and their own kind of cultures. And I kind of think when I'm trying to work with people kind of in that way, I don't know, like I don't think about geography at all because so many companies now, especially the bigger companies we work with, are so multicultural mm. and you know, and they're kind of countries to themselves, like especially, yeah, kind of being in, you know, when we, if you look at kind of these companies, especially big ones, Facebook, Apple, Google, they are kind of their own cities and their own kind of worlds in themselves. That must be something they have to reckon with because of like different countries, different communities have different sort of work cultures and different, you know, and so to run a company in multiple Locations. But even within multiple companies, though, then there are kind of different departments, and sometimes yeah. those cultures are dictated by the kind of the people there. That's very true. So yeah, like I find you, I have to be kind of more responsive, and and that's what I kind of like reading about these companies and kind of engaging with them that way, rather than kind of the geography of where they are. Georgia, as an editor and, and earlier as a writer, your job, you know, it's to craft pieces for your audience. I mean, I guess firstly, I don't know if you if you agree with that, but 
but I mean, over the course of your career and, and the insane number of things that you do, do you adjust your discourse to suit the audience? Is that something you're conscious of doing? So when people work with me, a lot of people end up calling me a translator rather than an editor, because it's now my role at Quartz as the ideas editor to take these really dense, dark academic topics that most people find very, very boring or hard to understand and make them accessible and make them exciting to an audience. Like I want to excite and educate people about the future. And that's really hard when some of the most intelligent people who are helping create that future are often the worst people at talking about it. So as uh, in my job, I need to climb inside the heads of these, uh, these people and work out the most relevant way that I can extract that knowledge and then, you know, uh, not change the conversation. And I don't like saying simplifying it either, but just finding that in point. Like, for an example, I went to an invisibility conference last year because my job is insane at this invisibility. <laughs> I'm sorry, what's an invisibility <laughs> conference? I think I need more context. It's, it's perhaps one of like part of my job is going and speaking at conferences. And this is by far, I just, I just attended this one because I got the invite and I'm like, yes, I want to go to an invisibility conference. So it was looking at invisibility in different forms. So they had one of the leading dark matter researchers start off. Uh, then there was a marine biologist that is studying the certain um, uh, fish scales that are being used to create cloaking devices for uh, submarines. But there was a music historian that uh, focuses on hip hop, looking at how hip hop was originally the uh, the the music to help reveal the invisible nature of what was happening in the projects. And then now it's become so ubiquitous, what role does it play? And then there was this scientist from Duke University, and he's a metamaterialist. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. His team has come the closest to inventing an invisibility cloak. So I was like, this is cool. How can I use this example to try to teach people about a bit of particle physics, metamaterialism through the guise of using this cool idea of we all want to be Harry Potter. Jeremy and I are just looking at each other like, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure that you guys can send the, the link out as part of this so you guys can read the article that ended up getting put together, which basically he catalogued for me all the different ways, chemically, physiologically, that one can become invisible. And then I got him to use pop culture references and relate it back to different movies and TV shows in order to explain these different physics components. Amazing. Jesus. I, yeah, look, I don't even know what to say because that sounds incredible and we can't wait to read it. We'll definitely send it out with the links. <laughs> I guess I wanted to just close out by just going back to the sort of geographic discourse stuff and just on a bit of a more personal note. I mean, like I was born in Singapore, but I've been in Australia since I was three. So I was always raised within the sort of Australian context. But my parents, uh, mum's from New Zealand, dad's from Mexico. I mean, I'd argue that New Zealand and Australia are pretty darn similar in, their, in many ways in their discourses, but there are definitely cultural differences between Mexico and Australia, much more obvious ones anyway. And I think that something that is common for a lot of children of immigrants is that there are always going to be things that make you sort of feel not quite part of the place you grew up in and also not quite part of the place that your parents are from. You're sort of in the middle of it a bit and that's probably a result of this sort of blend of discourses. And for me, this has been very, very minor. I, I mean, I definitely associate heavily as an Aussie and I feel very comfortable in this cultural context. And of course, it would be totally insane to generalise and say that everyone in Australia has one discourse and everyone in Mexico or the States has their own singular discourse as well. But there are definitely elements of the way that I think about things such as, I don't know, food or family that I do feel are distinctly Mexican and have probably been passed down from my father's discourse as someone who was, who was raised somewhere else. And I think Australia is a country that is such a melting pot 
has an especially clear sort of blend of these cultural discourses. And it's something I really, really love about being in this country. And I think the state sort of has that as well. And one of the things I noticed when I am in Mexico is that obviously there are people who weren't born and raised in Mexico there. There's lots of, you know, people from other places, but it is very largely far more than Australia, people who were born and raised in Mexico. And so you don't get that same mixing of discourses and cultures. And it's just, it's just a different experience. Well, very interesting stuff that I have never really given some you know, real kind of thought to. So, Laura, thanks for bringing the culture and intellect, as you like Mate, to do every welcome. week. Have you never had anyone come on and speak about invisibility cloaks and metamaterialism either? Oh, no. I mean, the last few weeks we've had that. That's come up a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> i got to say, <laughs> invisibility seems to be like a really big thing at the moment, especially like, I don't know, like I've used like in podcasts, especially there was like hidden brain, invisibility, mm-hmm. all these kind of like, I don't know, maybe it's a... Uh, What's it saying about our culture? What's that? that we want to- next episode, Jeremy. <laughs> next episode. Okay, we'll move on to our next link from there. Moving on to my link for the week. And this was a real breath of fresh air to read this piece written by Arun Ben Katasan, who is a software engineer and the co-founder of a very interesting startup named Carrot, which focuses on fertility benefits for employers. Um, definitely a hot issue to perhaps discuss in a future episode, maybe. But Arun writes about, you know, why are tech companies making custom typefaces? And he points out that for most of the last century, corporations have licensed their corporate typeface from type foundries. But the idea of commissioning or creating a custom and typeface for exclusive use by a single company or brand is relatively new in the history of typography. He then goes out to put really interesting timeline together of recent commissions in this space for the last 10 years, which I found really interesting, and gets some fantastic blurbs from pretty substantial type designers such as Eric Speakerman and Christian Schwartz of my favorite type foundry, Commercial Type, um, which we pretty much use exclusively here at Jackie Winter. But what really struck me about this piece is that this has been presented as somewhat of a new idea when I actually think it's really much more a natural progression of something that has been happening for a long time. But also this piece resonated with me quite personally, as I really identify myself as a type nerd. In fact, custom and corporate typefaces have been a pretty big part of my my personal practice for a long time, especially in editorial design, where I kind of started my career. In fact, most type designers working today, such as Jonathan Huffler and Tobias Ferris-Jones, for example, even now they're kind of separate, when they had their kind of collaborative type foundry, they built their practice off custom massheads and fonts for behemoths such as Vanity Fair and The New Yorker. The further democratization of the software combined with more readily available training has opened up a huge market for independent foundries and designers, yet it still remains a very specialized field with a very small number of expert craftspeople, including one of our very own, Dave Foster, for example, who actually does quite a bit of work with commercial type as freelancer. Because of this, the cost of developing custom type is, for the most part, extraordinarily high, not only because of the sheer amount of time that it takes to develop, but also because some of the great points that Arun makes in this article, such as the need for extended language support and other characters, not to mention almost infinite variations on fonts so they can really be used in a wider number of situations. And this is even touching on things like kerning pairs, for example, like, you know, the automated spacing that goes between different pairs of letters so it looks in it looks best on screen or in print wherever it's going. Furthermore, a font is actually a piece of highly coded software with limitless possibilities to refine, expand, and perfect a typeface. Um, evolutions in tech have allowed for some really amazing new things to be done. Um, something that's being explored recently is dynamic generation of new widths and weights or programming and randomness or automatic ligatures to a font, which is based off handwriting, something we've done on a few occasions for clients such as Vegemite, for example, where 
a client will engage an artist to draw an alphabet and then kind of have that digitized. So look, to that end, custom font generation is really, I think, the highest luxury that a brand can afford to differentiate themselves visually. So I'm really not surprised it has been relished by the tech community, an industry that is just kind of teeming with money and looking to kind of get that differentiation between each other. Um, and if you look at that kind of chart as well, it's pretty kind of obvious that this is kind of on the upswing as well. So look, there's no real great debate to be had here, but I'm just excited to see this side of type design generally kind of highlighted in, you know, outside of the usual kind of write-ups on brand new, et cetera. Um, so look, typography and writing, they go hand in hand. I'm really excited to have two people here with me who are such champions of the written word. So I'm really kind of curious just to hear your opinions on this, both from a professional and personal stance. Georgia, I wanted to turn to you first. As there's a pretty rich vein of design that runs through your work history. Um, is typography something on your radar as a writer? And how do you consider it in your own professional practice? So I am one of those journalists who I do not personally pay that much attention to typography in the type nerd standpoint, although most of my friends are type nerds and I tend to attract type nerds. I like people who pay attention to the minutia of things. And I think that typography is one of those interesting cases of a lot of people who are regular readers or consumers of these products or publications, they don't really notice or care about typography, but that doesn't mean that it subconsciously does affect what they're feeling and how they associate themselves with the brand. So although I can, you know, not get down with, you know, our kerning conversations, it doesn't mean that I don't think it's an important thing to consider. And I feel that Type nerds such as yourself, all all the praise to you for you know putting that flag in the ground and trying to make sure that brands do pay attention to it. I've, I've noticed, like you know, it's so interesting. Even if you look at kind of the, well, the three publications that I kind of more closely align you with, like Kinfolk, Frankie, and Quartz, like have three very different typographic styles and they're very kind of akin to their own kind of personalities and i know that when i was working in magazines one of my favorite things is just kind of the way that everyone kind of works together you know from you know designer editorial advertising publishing they're all kind of coming together and getting each other's kind of opinions of things because they are they're all part of that conversation do designers kind of engage with you in that way? Like, do you ever have those conversations about kind of typographic selection or how kind of, um, you know, your words are kind of presented visually? What is kind of the, the overlap that, that you kind of personally prefer or like to deal with in terms of that intersection? You there? mean, aside from my designers saying, Georgia, I'm really, really sorry, but this word can't be more than 12 characters long because it can't actually fit within the design. <laughs> I mean, honestly, as, as an editor, that's the conversation that you, you find yourself having the most when you start but then I wanted to be able to engage in that level. So I started trying to teach myself the basics of it. And I feel I also went through a redesign at Kinfolk. Uh, we've just redesigned Quartz website. Frankie, uh, the, the, t the design team there was absolutely fabulous. And I think that when we're trying to consider the importance of what your typeface says about you, again, I don't think that the consumers often really are aware of that. But it would be an interesting use case scenario to take the Frankie, Kinfolk, and Quartz typefaces and switch them and just even have each of those uh, brand names in the other one's typefaces and feel see how you would feel about that brand differently to be an example of the importance that they really have. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and that's kind of like, that's what typographers and lettering artists are always kind of talking about. Like, just like any other design element, there's no such thing as a neutral typeface, like even kind of Helvetica, which is kind of 
often used as kind of the gold oh, Helvetica standard. Helvetica is of... not neutral. Oh, exactly. Helvetica is not neutral anymore. It comes from <laughs> so many of its own, own ideas. Are you ever asked, like, are you involved in kind of those design conversations? Like, how like how do you participate in those kind of feedback sessions as someone who doesn't have a design background? And how do you kind of give constructive feedback in something that you might not have that kind of background on and still make contribution? Well, I think it's really important to have people inside the room that don't understand what they're talking about sometimes. Because in the same way that I spoke before about being a translator rather than an editor, you have to always consider not just are you making the people in the room happy that know what they're talking about, but is it going to make the consumers and the public writ large happy? So I always try to sometimes have in those conversations people in the room that have never encountered these kinds of issues before, because if you can't explain your methodology to them, then it's probably not going to go over large with the general population. Just one other thing is that I remember when we changed our backend our CMS at Quartz. And it went from being a, from everyone writing in a sans serif typeface to a serif typeface. And all of our writers freaked out (laughs) because they they said that they got so used to and so comfortable because they spend, you know, 10 hours a day writing in this, uh, the software that they just, it was comforting to them. And for their typeface to suddenly change, a lot of them started writing in Word or in Google Docs just so they could write in write in their old typeface again, which I found really interesting. That that shows even though you might not know that it's changed from a sans serif to a serif or what typefaces it's changed to and from, that you still have an emotional connection to these different bits of uh, design. Interesting. I, yeah. And I kind of think that's probably what makes you a fantastic editor as well is because that you're kind of can contribute on these all these kind of different levels. And I think like to I, I don't know, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent here, but I think yeah, to be an editor really kind of is, it goes beyond kind of words and looking at kind of words and all their, their forms and how they kind of present. And I think it's a trend that I'm kind of seeing more. I think the first thing I saw was um, Scott Dadich, who was the creative director and primary designer at Wired and how he eventually was then, he he's the first person I saw who went from the creative director to actually be the editor of Wired and then to be the complete creative director of Condé Nast. And now he has his kind of own studio. So I think it's, we're just kind of seeing trends where writers need to be design literate and designers need need to be literate, literate. <laughs> you know, as well. Laura, I want to turn to you. I mean, apart from the tech companies, we've seen a huge increase in the number of ad agencies developing custom type for their clients, especially, you know, a lot's happened here, Jackie Winter as well. Um, in your experience managing and quoting on these sorts of projects, is there anything specific to that side of the industry that you think their approach and motivation is similar to what's outlined in the article here? Or do you have anything else to kind of add? Firstly, I wanted to note that this is the second piece in just a couple of episodes that has quoted Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message sentiment. That guy gets around. He gets around. But no, I mean, yeah, I love working on custom typeface projects. I mean, I've probably, in the last year or two, I've probably only worked on maybe three, four, five or something. Um, I mean, as you said, they're they're a big undertaking, both in terms of, of time and money. But when a good project like this comes along, it is such an interesting process. And I think type, more than anything else that we work on here at Jackie Winter, has a real primary need to be functional and not just beautiful. Um, A couple of years ago, Dave Foster, who I think you mentioned before, we represent one of the sort of, feel very comfortable saying one of the best type designers in the world. Um, He came in to give all of us agents and producers here a bit of a workshop in his process. And I remember being just absolutely like flabbergasted at just how incredibly technical and time consuming it was. And I know, I know that sounds obvious, like, of course it's technical, of course it's time consuming, but I think seeing the layers of process from one of the world's sort of premier type designers was just, it was just something else. The precision and care that goes into developing a truly 
first-class piece of type software is mind-boggling. And there's just so much more to it than most people would assume. And I guess, I mean, that's like most things though. When you walk into into a building, you don't really think about all the highly complex math that's sort of gone into figuring out where the support beams have to go and so on. You know, everything. And, and I always think about this when it comes to playing instruments, like everything looks simple on the outside until you actually have to do it yourself. And I definitely think most people, just because of a, of a totally understandable lack of awareness, massively underestimate how intricate a process it is to create a custom typeface, or a good one anyway. And that means often as well that clients massively underestimate the, the cost that might be associated with it. I thought one of the most interesting parts of this piece was where you put forward three conditions for if a custom typeface is to be created. And his first condition is that companies should do it for the right reasons and not just because it's what everyone else is doing. And he quoted uh, Christian Schwartz from Commercial Type who says, with every new client who wants us to draw something custom, the first part of our process is to try to talk them out of it, just to make sure that they're doing it for the right reason, that they need something and there isn't something that exists already that could suit their needs perfectly because it's a waste of somebody's time and their money if we're just recreating something for them that already exists. Life is too short for that, which was interesting, but it was also so sort of altruistic. I wondered how true it actually was. I feel like there was a piece missing from that statement. You know, he's not just trying to get them to see if there's something that already exists that suits their needs. He's trying to see if there's something that already exists that suits their needs that has been created by commercial type so that they could license that instead. But I mean, anyway, that aside, Aaron's second condition uh, was that companies must commit to understanding typography and devoting the resources needed for a well-executed typeface. And I, I really loved this condition. Um, as I mentioned before, and as, as Bruno Marg is quoted as saying in the piece, a typeface it isn't really a piece of art. It has a very clear purpose, just like a, a chair or an engine might, well, does. <laughs> and in my own experience working on these projects, there are about 10 billion trillion tiny little decisions that go into creating a typeface, all of which affect its ability to successfully sort of fulfill that purpose. And it's really important that a type designer take the time to consider all of these and explain them to the client and, and ask questions that lead to the necessary information. And in reverse, it's really important that a client allows the time and mental space to do this as well. Well, um, and I've seen, I've been in situations where they have, and I've been in situations where they haven't, and you get very different results. And uh, just as well to note, the third and final condition that Aaron puts forward is a plea to type designers out there. Uh, and he says, could we try to make any custom typefaces different than what's already around? And he mentions that during his research process, he noted down all the various keywords used to describe some of these latest tech company typefaces. And it was the same thing over and over again. It was friendly, modern, clean, simple, human. <laughs> and uh, as Aaron says, it's like everyone wants something that they can use to define their brand, yet they really just want a slightly different version of what everyone has. And then he's included this amazing image. You have to, people listening have to go have a look. Um, he's compiled examples of the the Netflix, Airbnb, Google, and Apple typefaces, all with the text uh, unique typeface as the example. And holy shit, they're so similar. It's like, I just don't even think the people who design them would be able to pick them out of a lineup. Oof. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a really tough one because there's so much kind of subtlety. I think type designers get a lot of flack exactly kind of for that point, And I don't know if it's completely warranted. It's, but like, is it worse than like Apple spending hundreds of thousands to get something done that is to everyone using it? exactly the same as Google's or Airbnb's or Netflix. Well, that's the thing. Like, this is the thing that, like, I th kind of think that to the point that George was making before as well, that, like, a lot of these kind of things are kind of subconscious and you, like, there are, you can register very kind of subtle changes in a way that might not be completely obvious to you, but that will associate you with that kind of brand. Yes, there are kind of certain visual characteristics that I think are kind of being repeated a lot. And, like, look, yeah, why aren't people kind of using black letter or kind of more slab serifs or kind of, well, that's why kind of what MailChimp did with their choice of typeface was so radical because it was so outside of that kind of norm. But I think, yeah, it, it's 
a lot of people don't it, it, because it's kind of so subtle you often hear it's like there's way too many typefaces in the world like you know do we really need another typeface it's like well do we really need any more music you know it's like yes of course there's a lot of kind of similarities but then you know there's infinite different things that can be done with type and i think with the technology that's happening that, that we're seeing now and experiencing now that those possibilities have been even more kind of expanded so it's a really yeah look time. i'm not going to be trying to convince anyone you know not to hire one of our artists to create a custom typeface anytime soon but i again i, I feel a little different just because what we do is is usually it's hand-lettered before being sort of digitized and coded so inherently they're all pretty pretty unique well if this opens anyone up to just kind of you know the wide and wonderful world of kind of type design especially kind of more independent foundries and designers i hope that's a good thing i'm actually going to put a link to one of my favorite kind of annual surveys from a site called typographica that puts on their they do i love that it's incredible yeah they just released their 2000 and I think it's just their 2018 yeah. list or 2017 list. It takes a while for them to compile, but I'll put a link to that. But before we wrap up this, um, I just want to kind of survey both of you in terms of what your favorite typeface is and, wh- and why. Do any of you have a particular kind of go-to that you kind of use for everything kind of in your personal work? You mix it up a bit. Is there Oof. something or is there a specific typeface that you have strong hateful feelings about or opposite. I've got to be honest like I, I certainly appreciate a finely crafted typeface but I am shocking at actually recognizing them like I, I couldn't I couldn't give you a favorite I'm not a designer or a typesetter and there are very few situations when I've ever been in charge of choosing what typeface something should be set in and you know when I'm writing emails or documents there's generally a default that's the default for, for a reason it's you know it's legible it does the job um, and I mean like for example George you were talking about your writers sort of freaking out when 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 the typeface changed and I totally get that I think I would freak as well like I tend to just stick to Arial for all of my notes and this is not for anything that's going out to anyone else but for my notes I stick to Arial for everything because I just find it so incredibly easy to digest like it's a typeface you can skim read really quickly um, but I mean yeah, it's far from being my favorite typeface there there are so many stunning bits of type out there and I so infrequently put them to use that I, I don't know that I can really answer the question Georgia what about you well, thank you for bringing that up in terms of easy to digest because I also don't have a clear answer, but I have a fantastic fact instead to offer. I'm happy with that. Which is, so CERN, which is an amazing physics organization, they're the guys that run the Large Hadron Collider, which is that thing that smashes atoms at each other really, really quickly. When they found the Higgs-Bonson particle, which is the final particle in the standard model of particle physics, which is this huge, huge, huge thing in the phys- in physics world, they've been, they basically built the Large Hadron Collider partly to find this thing. But it is only important or interesting to a very, very small amount of people. And again, bringing this whole translation theme back in, they were trying to work out what is the way that we can present this knowledge. So what did the slides that announced the finding of the Higgs-Bonson particle use? Comic Sans. And the, the reason why the physicists used it was apparently so they thought it would make it more accessible to people if they were seeing something that was announcing these very, very dense topics in a very uh, friendly <laughs> typeface instead of it being in like something a lot more just like, you know, strong and serious. So in terms of how typefaces can influence the way that we communicate things, that's my favorite typeface related fact. It is a good fact. I mean, Comic Sans, I think, is the cilantro of typefaces. Well, actually, no, that not is, even. Oh, which, by the way, is called coriander there in Australia. It should be coriander and it's delicious. You are broken, Jeremy. But we've, <laughs> I, look, I've yelled at you about this before. We will put all these links to the show notes. George, do you have something to add, though? What would that be? So in relation to that whole idea about originality and design, there's another fantastic type-related article. It's by the Klim uh, guys in New Zealand. It's called 10,000 Original Copies, and it's all about the concept of originality in design and how we have to kill it. 
It's talking about how everything is an iteration nowadays and we have this, we're internally seeking for something unique and that's dividing us and anything else apart from that is incredibly egocentric. It's a really, really divisive piece that is basically trying to say, stop trying to reinvent the wheel as so many people are doing. And uh, as it's written by some design heavyweights, you know, typeface weights. Oh, look, I just made a type joke. See, I am a typeface. Hey, anyway, if we could put that in the show notes, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant addition to the, what you guys were talking about. We certainly will, Georgia. Thank you for that. Thank you very much. Moving on to our final link of the week, Georgia, really excited to hear from you about something that's very kind of close to all of our hearts here. Before you tell us about your link and where you found it from, I'm just kind of curious, what is your internet hygiene like? Where do you kind of find links? Are you a Twitter person, an RSS person? Obviously, kind of writing and articles saturate your life and kind of with your job. Is it kind of something where you kind of find it hard to kind of engage with outside of that? Or yeah, tell us a bit more about it. Reading for pleasure is a very foreign concept to me, I will admit. <laughs> so I'm very, very fortunate that I, yes, I do use Twitter quite a lot, but I do use Twitter quite a lot. But to be honest, Slack is the place I get most of my news because all of our journalists are coming to all of our different Slack channels to post about things before they work out whatever that 280 character perfect quip about it to post on Twitter is. So I often find out about things and see the best articles go through our personal Slack feed. Unfortunately, that is not helpful for people who are not on the Quartz staff. I apologize. We've actually just released a new app at Quartz that you can now find in the iTunes store. I swear this isn't a plug. I'm actually using it. It's a really interesting idea. So it, it kind of brings together this all the different parts of social media and aggregators that are somewhat broken because we used to, of course, get a lot of our news through Facebook. But when Facebook broke democracy and therefore changed their algorithm to deprioritize different publishers, we stopped going to Facebook to talk about the news. And then some people say, well, you can use Twitter, but Twitter is more like screening your opinion into the ether and hoping that someone finds it funny. It's not really a conversation. Then you have Reddit. Reddit has a fantastic community, except Reddit also has some very alarming communities. So a lot of people find that a little bit not as accessible as what you would want it. Then you've got your Google Newses and your Apple Newses and Pocket and Flipboard and all these aggregators, but you can't actually talk about it. So what the new app that Quartz just launched does is that it allows you to discover the news and comment on it in one place. And it's really starting to drive some interesting conversations. So if you're a bit tired of the way that you're reading the news, I would recommend it download for an alternative way to find out your news. Well, yeah, I mean, this kind of segues nicely into your article as well, because I recall I was maybe before you were there, but Quartz's app like was basically a chatbot in a mm -hmm. way that you were kind of getting your news kind of in this way. Yeah, so, we talked about that maybe last season at some point. Yeah. So let's go. Let's take a step back. Tell us a bit about this link, why you picked it and yeah, what it's about. So one of my through my job, I get to work with a lot of really interesting people with interesting topics about the way that they think certain things are going to implicate the future. And I will put all my money behind voice being the next thing that is going to massively change the way that we interact with businesses, society, and each other. So voice user interfaces, VUIs, I'll be using the VUI uh, just because I'm Australian and I like shortening things where I can. So 
BUIs, I think, are really going to be a huge part of our future. And there's lots of fantastic journalism on this right now. So I'm lucky enough to get the print New York Times easily delivered to my doorstep in Brooklyn. The New York Times Magazine's issue last week was the tech and design issue. And it had fantastic articles on protonomics, which is going to be kind of like the the new version of a 23andMe that looks like different proteins in your blood rather than your genomics. Really interesting pieces on AI. There's a fantastic piece titled The Human Brain brain as a time traveler. I should introduce them to my invisibility cloak guys. Then there's this fantastic piece that is looking at chatbots, the future of voice, because chatbots and voice are very closely related because you need to create a chatbot that understands natural language processing, NLP, in order to then have the chatbot then speak it out. So chatbots and the series and the Alexas that we chat with, they're just chatbots that have that are, you know, announced via voice rather than anything else. And I think that we're right now not really paying enough attention to how this is going to change how we'll interact with the world. Because I remember when I was in high school, we were doing all of these English exams about, you know, is texting going to change the way that we speak? And fortunately, we don't write skater SK8. And it has... Speak for yourself, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Mate with an M8, I'm sure. Obviously. So it's, you know, text did change the way that we spoke in some ways, but I think that if we start to interact with each other and things with speech, it's going to also change the way that we interact with each other because we're a lot more effusive when we say something out aloud than when we type it because we can just have that that immediate brain idea. There's not an interface in between except for when the computer becomes the interface. And so what happens when we say things we don't mean or we're not saying the things that we actually do want to say because there's that lack of nuance there. So when we're thinking of this in terms of the future and how we'll interact with things as consumers, you know, think about how we'll buy things, for an example. You aren't anymore going to think, okay, I need new toilet paper and bring up all these different tabs on Google Instead of having all those choices, you'll ask Alexa, hey, Alex, could you please order me some toilet paper? And you'll probably be presented with one option. And if you want to hear more options, you can ask for them. But instead of having this total availability of choice, we're going to suddenly be narrowed down to just having one choice. And then we'll get used to making those choices. And then brands will start to go out of business because they're not part of that accidental discovery process anymore. I could go on and on and on about all the different ways that chatbots and voice are going to change. But I want to know first, like, do you guys use voice assistants? Why, why not? Like, do you, do you find that when you're talking to them, are you treating them like robots? Are you treating them like humans? I, yeah, look, this is a really interesting one because I think it points to a real generational shift as well. Where like I just do not feel comfortable barking out <laughs> commands like verbally or even kind of like, like, I think because I grew up in kind of the, the textual internet where everything was kind of typed in chat rooms and ICQ and kind of BBSs and all that, like kind of that's that's kind of my preferred mode of correspondence. Like, you know, even now, like, you know, I love doing things over kind of SMS or iMessage and text message and things like that. And I think kind of when Siri and voice assistants came along, it just felt like such a different mode that I kind of didn't fully connect it. And I think this piece really kind of made me feel like a bit of a generational gap between people like, or like my kids' generation, like my daughter, we got her Alexa and like, you know, she speaks to Alexa and it's a very kind of natural part of her process. So I think that's going to be part of how she interacts and with these kind of things going forward. But I also have kind of like, I know that what the Slate Culture Gap Fest, who's the editor, former editor of Slate, Julia Turner, she talks like a lot about how she does a lot of her work and dictates to Siri. And I was like, well, you know, people are kind of taking this on board. And I kind of think that 
Well, it's not a completely new concept. You look at kind of how, you know, people like did dictate work, like, you know, to secretaries or assistants kind of like in the 50s and 60s. And I think there is kind of this interesting emergence of kind of more kind of senior people kind of going back to that using that tech and then kind of a younger generation who's kind of being who's marinating in it right now but i kind of feel somewhat stuck in the middle where like i'm not kind of sure i think i'm going to get kind of left behind in some way but i think it's from a professional context i think it presents probably the richest area of opportunity and to kind of develop things especially when you look at what's happening with podcasts and how people are kind of engaging kind of with content you're correct it is all kind of voice activated and and yeah, I thought this piece was a really kind of great survey and kind of talking about where it's kind of come from and where the potential applications are, and especially for things like, you know, evening the playing field and how it's going to work in a social justice capacity or work with um, elderly people and all these kind of other things. So yeah, overall, a great piece. Yeah, I loved this piece as well. I thought it was brilliant. Thank you, Georgia, for bringing it to us. I really liked reading it. I also wanted to note that I used Wobot, the uh, the CBT chatbot that they mentioned right at the beginning of the piece. A uh, good friend of the show, Penny Modra, put me onto it. Although I admit it. Love Penny. Admittedly, I did delete it eventually because it was taking up so much of my time. I found some of the questions really hard to answer, and I mean, I initially I liked it as a way of forcing myself to reflect, like like a journal, like a journal almost. But if you sort of want a proper considered uh, response and, and guidance, you you will need a human therapist. But yes, back to voice assistants. We we do have a Google Home. Um, my housemate does, who's moving out in a couple of weeks, so I have one for the next couple of weeks, and I, and I, I use it to put music on and to set timers occasionally. But largely, I use it just like I would use any other sort of wireless speaker. Like I choose music through my phone and, and connect it to the Google Home. I do have an iPhone, so I have Siri, of course. And again, I use Siri for timers while I'm cooking, you know, when my hands are covered in like flour or mints or something. But again, that's kind of about it. And I think it's largely because when Siri was first released in Australia, you couldn't actually do 99% of the things that it showed on all the ads, like weather or directions or restaurant recommendations. Like you would ask her and she'd be like, that data is not available. And, you know, because that data access was limited to the States. So I kind of got used to not using Siri then. And then I never adapted my habits even once all that stuff was available here. And I think you sort of ask about what the barriers are. And I think there are sort of, I guess, three probably key barriers for me. Firstly, that Siri and Google home get it wrong half the freaking time and I find myself having to repeat things that are very loudly and very enunciated and it just takes way more bloody time than doing it the regular way and secondly and this kind of you know kind of stems from the same thing but they only seem to work well for sort of quite general requests. Like if you want to get really specific, which I usually do, then it just is better to do it by hand. And I mean, Jeremy and probably the people listening, you know me, I can't make a decision about even the simplest thing without researching all of my options. Georgie, you mentioned sort of buying toilet paper or paper towel or whatever. Like that goes so against every fiber of my being, not looking at like every price option and ply option and maker. and Like I, I just can't, I can't buy things like that. And also lastly, Jeremy's kind of touches on what you were saying, but like I'm very rarely not around people. I like I feel silly and also a bit rude talking to my phone instead of just like kind of silently tapping away. <laughs> like I'm not going to sit on the train or in the office and ask Siri a bunch of stuff. And like in any case, if my phone is near enough for Siri to hear me, then it's also near enough for me to just type in whatever I need. I think I'd like to be able to treat these things like an assistant eventually, but it's it's not quite there yet enough for me to be doing that at the moment. I think like Google Home never seems to bloody hear me. Yet for some reason, every time that there's an ad for Google Home on TV, the stupid thing chimes in thinking that I've asked it something. Every single time the ad goes off, she's like, I'm sorry, I don't understand. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. But when I ask her to actually do something useful, she's got no clue what I want. 
There was though, there was a quote in the article that was really interesting and it touches on what you were saying as well, Jeremy, about, you know, how things are quite different for kids that are growing up with this technology in their houses from the day they're born. Megan Keeney Anderson, she's a vice president of HubSpot. She was quoted as saying, my daughter is 22 months old now. At nine months, she said her first word, which was the dog's name. And then at 13 months, she learned to walk. And then by 15 months, she started giving Alexa commands. And she adds, I think my daughter is growing up in a world where you just speak what you want into the universe and it provides, (laughs) which is kind of crazy. What about you, Georgia? How do VUIs kind of, I guess, figure into your life at the moment? Well, I think that the perspective that you guys are taking right now is reflecting on the realities of VUIs right now not being that great. But I think that we sometimes have to be patient with new technologies and not just kind of throw them out before they have had enough time to gather enough data. And that's part of the thing that you guys are talking about is it's data. It's probably you guys also um, saying things in different accents. Jeremy, with your mishmash accent, uh, Lara, with your Australian accent, I know I experienced the same thing as well. But when I look to the future, the example you just gave of the next generation that's coming up, and they aren't worried about just naturally speaking what they want out into the universe. I know that I'm trying to get into the habit of instead of typing a question to Google when I'm with a friend, I'll just use the Siri command. And you get weird looks, but then when you get the right answer, I just think that this is going to become a a more normal thing. I also wanted to chime in on that idea of that you want to over-research everything. So there's a brilliant researcher called Gerd Gerdsinger. And he looks at choice heuristics, so the different ways that we we make choices. And one of the things that I learned from uh, my favorite book of his, Gut Feelings, is that psychologically, you are actually often happier with a choice that you make quickly rather than a choice that you labor over. Oh, that I can assure you that that is true. That doesn't mean that I do it. <laughs> well, it's, this is also interesting to go back to the discourse conversation where like, I do think if there's, if there's one big thing that separates Australians from Americans is how loud Americans are. And when I recognize it, you know, here in Australia, like it, it makes me kind of kind of cringe as well, like being around other Americans. And I and I think this is probably going to not help that whole situation. Mm-hmm. So we can say that things aren't working quite as well as what we want them to be. But I think that actually brings up an interesting idea of, well, we're still getting used to the way that we're treating these assistants. And often we're really annoyed at them, right? Because they're not listening to what we're saying properly. And what I'm worrying is as these assistants get better, as they become more natural, as we can start to treat them more like real assistants, we can treat them like humans, we're going to get used to treating actual humans the same way that we treat our assistants. For an example, have you guys ever had that experience when you're emailing back and forth with someone trying to create a meeting time and then you suddenly realize that they've got a meeting chatbot that is trying to organize the meeting time with you? <laughs> oh my God, no one I know is that fancy. <laughs> that has never happened to me. I think I would be really disturbed. I'd be really weirded out yeah. by that. Yeah. So... Uh, so, <laughs> and as soon as I realize that I'm chatting to an automated chatbot, I can just give them the inputs. I don't have to do the like, hey, Chris, thanks for being adaptable with your time. And I know that all they're looking for is the input for the output. And, you know, I, I fear as these chatbots become better and better that we start treating humans like that. And two years ago, I worked with a reporter, Leah Fessler. We created the first definitive data set of how different chatbots respond to sexual harassment. And so we looked at Alexa, Siri, Google Home, and Cortana. 
we created a definitive list that was looking at all the different ways that these chatbots react when you call them sluts, when you call them babe, when you ask them to, you know, do other things. I'm not going to say on your podcast, I'll say cracking the shits, but I won't say some of the other things that I made this reporter say to these chatbots. <laughs> and the fear is if that becomes normalized in the way that we interact with these AIs, then it'll become normalized as well in society. How do you guys feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very real concern. Another thing that came to mind for me, which, I mean, this might be really silly because we're probably already in this age, but I feel a little wary of hitting a point where sort of just anything you ever want to know can be said out loud and information will be fed back to you. And I'm concerned for a couple of reasons. I mean, partly because of the fact that if people aren't doing their own research to find answers, then that means that they're accepting whatever bit of information a bot feeds them as fact without sort of looking at any alternatives. And and also I think there's important skill in being able to search for your own information. And I'm, I'm kind of nervous about the idea of, of losing that. Although I guess that's what people sort of said when the internet <laughs> became a thing, I guess. But, and again, I also, I Google everything constantly, so I'm a key offender. But at least I think, you know, in Googling things on a screen, I'm presented with lots of different options rather than just one response as you, as you get with a voice assistant. And the other concern for me is these do become more and more functional and more ingrained in our day-to-day lives is that, I mean, we know already that all around the world there is this sort of increasing and, and quite sort of deadly problem of loneliness. It's been proven time and time again that this sort of lack of social interaction is really detrimental to both our, our physical and emotional health and, and replacing all of these daily exchanges normally held you know, between humans with VUIs, I don't know, I have a fear that it might sort of exacerbate that. But again, you know, that said, there are lots of services, uh, Jeremy, you mentioned, you know, lots of services could be scaled and and democratized for people who really need them through the use of VUIs. So as always on this podcast, I have no clear feelings one way or the other. There are many pros and many cons to all sides of the argument. It's just, it's fascinating. Jeremy, what about you? Oh, look, I kind of think, like Georgia mentioned, it is such kind of early tech, but I think it's really worth kind of investing in and kind of looking at, especially from a branding and marketing perspective. It's like, similar to kind of VR like we're doing a lot of work and experimentation in VR but like I think because of a lot of the things that are specific to VR that makes it a very hard medium it's very similar for kind of voice but it doesn't mean that something is not going to happen that's going to make that kind of tipping point and it's very obvious that this is going to be part of our future kind of whether we like it or not so yeah I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes um, Georgia do you have anything to close on with this topic at all I guess that's just that branding marketing thing that you brought up because we do have to consider what it's going to mean to be in a brand where the main way that people might interact with you or purchase you is not going to be visual. It's not going to be textual. It's going to be through voice. So I'm wondering if the era of the jingle is going to come back, for an example. I'm also considering things like there was a, there's a piece that I can get you guys to put in your notes that I had someone write for me that was looking at the different things that brand marketers have to consider. And for an example, when you're buying yogurt, So it's always that whole thing about women in the yogurt aisle and you've got so many different choices of which yogurt to choose. So you are probably more likely to order Yoplait because it's a brand name that you know how to pronounce rather than, so my favorite yogurt is the one that is spelled F-A-G-E. Now, is that Fage, Fage, Fage? If different people are all pronouncing it in a different way, how is everyone ever going to be able to order it? And even if it's served to you as an option, you might not recognize the sound of it. So even considering the names of brands now might take this different direction as soon as voice becomes the main thing that we're interacting with everything with. That's a really interesting thought. And a lot of this is, is stuff that hadn't really occurred to me until you, you brought it up, actually. And look, currently, I might be totally in the dark here, but there isn't any sort of advertising, like at least sort of 
over advertising on assistants like Serial or Google Assistant at the moment. Correct me if I'm wrong. Not As yet, the article, but, oh my yes, gosh, people will start. Bu- people will start buying the the rights to be served at the top of those lists for sure. Absolutely. So I mean, it's just interesting though because one thing that they mentioned in the article is how the usability of these things sort of does rely on their perceived like authenticity and legitimacy. So advertising on those platforms might negate this a bit. You know, and of course, yet yeah, there is potential for things to function kind of like AdWords. You know, where, where brands are paying a fee to be delivered first in results. You know. So, for example, if someone asks a question about couriers in the area, Star Trek might pay to be the first company mentioned. But I do, I feel like any advertising will end up, or will need to be sort of more subtle or sneaky in nature than your traditional jingle advert, whether that's companies doing a sort of voice assistant specific SEO kind of stuff um, that ensures that they are picked up first in any requests or or creating their own bits of code or apps that integrate with these assistants to, to sort of flog their particular wares. Who knows? Certainly not me. <laughs> All really good points to take on board. So much to pick apart here. But Georgia, you'll send us that link as well for that piece you were talking about. Mm -hmm. I shall indeed. Excellent. And we will put all that in the show notes as usual. And I think that'll do us for this week. Before we go, it is time for drumroll, please, 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 please. <laughs> the brilliantly named thumbs up, thumbs down, shaka. The time we dedicate each week to get the good, the bad, and completely petty off of our chest. Lara, get us started. What do you got for us this week? Thumbs up, thumbs down. I got a shaka. shaka. I got, got a shaka for semi-accidental bargain that I scored this week. A little while back, I was doing some late night eBay scrolling and I put a low bid on something that I was like 190% sure that I would not win, especially because there were like six and a half days left on the auction. And then I forgot about it pretty much immediately. And six and a half days later, my phone buzzed and it turned out I'd won the auction and I copped a GHD curling iron in the box for 75 bucks. Not too shabby. Jeremy, I can see you're excited about that. I'm, I'm very excited. <laughs> What about you, Jeremy? What do you got for us? That is a very good question. I have not even thought about anything just yet. I need to... Georgia, what have you got for us? (laughs) I'm going to give a big thumbs up to Thanksgiving. Thank you, America, for this wonderful turkey-filled occasion, except this is actually going to be my first Thanksgiving where I will be going back vegetarian. I've recently been doing a lot of work on the future of food, and I've just decided that I can't continue eating meat uh, for environmental reasons and be moderating these kinds of panels. So I, for the Thanksgiving holiday this weekend, will be using every ounce of my self-control to not dive into delicious turkeys but I'll be able to give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down of whether I'm successful next week. Well, our US office is all vegetarians, and so they'll all be doing vegetarian Thanksgiving as well. Getting that too far. Jeremy, on. did you think about it? <laughs> did anything come up in that little little moment you had? Yes, it's been in my pocket this whole time. This is my new favorite thing that I brought back from the States. Of everything that I got, <sighs> crazy Aaron's thinking putty. It's the best thing in the world. And it's like, like you know, talking about disruption, I can't believe nobody, you know, before Crazy Aaron thought to disrupt the industry of putties and silly putties. But he's got like around like 30 to 40 different kind of colors and effects. And, and it comes in a little tin, like a, like a, almost like a little lip balm. This is a mini version. Mm. It's like I've been playing with it nonstop since I got I it. I saw from, you the other day and I was wondering what it was. I was like, is it gum? Like what the, f- oh my God, this is phenomenal. Is, I'm stealing it. It is so much fun. Highly endorse my Crazy Aaron's Thinking Putty. I cannot believe you didn't bring it back for all of us. Get into it. Amazing. Georgia, thank you again so much for being so generous with your time this afternoon slash evening slash morning. If people want to find out more about you, read more about your thoughts, thinkings, going ons, etc., where can they find you on the internet? Probably the best way to have the centralized version is to go visit my Twitter, which is at Georgia Francis K., 
And you can also just go to qz.com and see all the content we're putting up there. Amazing. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me nerd out with you guys. Thank you so much, Georgia. I'm Jeremy Wartzman. She's Laura Tempaker, and this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is by totally unrelated to our company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you want more Jackie Winter Gives You the Business, archives of all of our shows and links we've covered can be found at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. To receive all the links we talk about on the show each week in one neat little package, you can sign up to our brand new and redesigned podcast newsletter at tinyletter.com slash Jackie Winter. You can also find us mostly on Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y and Winter like the season and you can hit us up with any recommendations feedback questions or comments at podcast at jackiewinter.com if you love what you hear you know what to do on itunes recommend us all that other stuff you could also get the show wherever you get your podcast including spotify or stitcher or for the traditionalist directly from our website at jackiewinter.givesyouthe.biz remember that this is an enhanced podcast we talk about lots of visual stuff if you want to see it directly in your feed as we are talking you can do that in pocket cast overcast castro or the recently redesigned apple podcast app uh, if you work for an advertising agency or design studio and are interested in our live extended version of the show called Open Tabs, be sure to check out opentabs.rodeo for more info. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye bye. Totally just blank here. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, oh, trying to think of a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Squarespace. <laughs> no, sorry, go.